This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to the Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier men's lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. Now, this show is about you, so we're here to help you become the best man or woman you can be in every area of your life. If you're new to the show, but you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, listen to The Art of Charm Toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. That's where you'll get the fundamentals of dating and attraction, such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, a lot of that stuff that's more important than you might think, and we've even got relationship management, long-distance relationships, and breakups covered as well. We've also got live training boot camps running every single week here in Hollywood, California. Details at theartofcharm.com or give us a call here in the office, 888-413-7177. Looking forward to meeting all of you guys here at The Art of Charm. All right, today we're talking with my friend and writer for Wired slash Fast Company slash future best-selling author of Smart Cuts, Shane Snow. We're going to talk about building our MacGyver brain how to push through assumptions and approach problems like a computer hacker, something called skeptical optimism and how it can help bulletproof us, and of course, and how neurotically making spreadsheets can lead to better performance. Enjoy this one with Shane Snow. You've won awards uh, for some of your entrepreneurial ventures, and you're a journalist as well, Wired, etc. And I mean, the thing is, you wrote a book called Smart Cuts, which I have been, unfortunately, in my head calling Smarty Cuts for some reason. So it's, uh, I'll go with that. If enough people use that, you know, whatever. It doesn't sound as good as the title that you picked, which is Smart Cuts uh, instead of Shortcuts. I don't know where Smarty Cuts came from. Uh, you can have it. And you've been working with uh, Wired and other publications. I mean, the list is too long to mention, but I, I got to ask you, and maybe this isn't a PC question, but when you write a ton for things like Wired and you've been a tech geek for a long time and you're, you've got all these diverse hobbies and then you write a book. How much of journalism and writing is like, I've got to do all this stuff to pay the bills while I write this other thing that I think is like my opus or whatever. Like this is the yeah. thing I care about and everything else is just kind of like, sure, I'll write about, you know, trends in LinkedIn content sharing and how that's changing the face of job hunting for you know entrepreneur.com but really you like you just kind of like can't wait to eat your salmon benedict and get that thing out of your hair so you can keep working on your book i mean i that's really common i think for me the thing that i feel fortunate about is that i really love everything that i write about and i've been fortunate enough to get to write about things that fascinate me and sort of indulge my curiosity but for most journalists that i know and this is part of why we started contently is to help journalists make that money so they can do the thing they're passionate about but no i mean i have a, a buddy who sits next to me at work who used to work for new york one the local tv station and he was like the parade guy so like you stand in front of a camera like while the parade goes by and like it's not journalism and it's not particularly fun but you do that and then you save up and right now he's in cuba and he's writing about it and that's the thing that he loves and so uh, that that is very common i, I think for me just my trajectory has been nice where not a whole lot of people have been able to 
to work their way up to the fun sciencey stuff that that I have so quickly, but also not a whole lot of people love like geeking out over neuroscience and and I do. And so uh, the things that I, I tend to explore and write about are my passion. And actually the book is really an outgrowth of that, of exploring people and businesses that did incredible things in short amounts of time. And that whole thing just fascinates me. Yeah, th- this is an exciting one, particularly because when I started off, of course, in college and after college, I knew some writers who were like beat writers, just writing about what gets handed to them. And then I became really good friends with a guy, I don't know if you know Neil Strauss, but he's he used to work for Rolling Stone, and I mm-hmm. think he still does, and he writes books. And so everything he writes about, he gets like sucked in because it's freaking amazing and fascinating yes. and cool. You know, met like Robert Greene and stuff. And then it was funny because, you know, then you kind of pop back out of that circle for a minute and you meet somebody else who's a writer, but they're like doing payroll for some company like The Art of Charm on the side. And you go, oh, yeah, there's still that. And I think you can create things that are so much better when you're passionate about what you're doing. And and I mean, you've kind of mentioned this, the things we connected on before the show, which is not to put it into the platitude format, but you've got one life to live. Why work hard just for hard work's sake and not get better at it and not get to what you really like? And you've got this Bruce Lee quote that I love that I hadn't even heard, which was, if you truly love life, don't waste time because time is what life is made of. I'd never even heard that. That's awesome, though. Yeah, I mean, that guy was incredible. He was a philosopher as much as he was a martial artist. And I think that's actually what made him such a great martial artist is he thought so differently in a way, as depressing as it sounds, sometimes hard work can actually be a lazier route because if you work really hard doing the thing that everyone else tells you to do, I mean, you can dig a ditch for 12 hours a day and you're going to get less far than the person who figures out the smarter way to dig the ditch so that they can then save the four hours a day so that then they can go build the thing that they're passionate about. Right. And Bruce Lee, he was, he was so great because he turned the convention of what it was to do martial arts on its head when you know everyone had like their style and their fighting stance and the sort of rules of like their system that they they fought over which was the best system he said well there should be no fighting stance and there should be no style and you should be completely fluid and it freaked people out he was uh, he was a philosopher and that that's what made him so good but he lived a really short life too i mean he died when he was like 31 or something which is absolutely tragic and he packed you know 100 years of incredible stuff into that life. And I, I think that, uh, you know, it was almost prescient of him to say that, uh, that if you love life, you shouldn't waste a second of it. Yeah, it's it does get a little depressing when you think about that. And then it's like, raised his kid to be like this ultra badass, like, hey, don't make all the same mistakes I did and was on an even further upward trajectory in a lot of ways with Hollywood being what it was having his dad's mm-hmm. connections and then same damn thing. But let's not dive into that. That's just sure. But, but there's wah, a legacy wah. there. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> <laughs> They both left behind something incredible, and I think that you know, no one can predict like when your time is up, but even more reason to uh, to try and leave something behind for other people. Yes, of course. Well, legacy is greater than currency. That's what we say here at The Art of Charm. That's what I tell myself when I wake up and look at my credit card statement and my rent. <laughs> you do a lot of ditch digging. I've done a lot of ditch digging at The oh, Art yeah. of Charm, and not in the efficient way. I remember years sitting in my office, I mean, months at a time, recording things that never saw the light of day because they sucked. They are not even on a hard drive somewhere. They're just in the ether, destroyed forever. You talk about a lot of things in your book, one of which is lateral thinking, which I didn't really understand what that meant. Obviously, you explain it, but you approach challenges more like a computer hacker, which makes sense, working with Wired and all those uber geeks over there, which, by the way, I'm, I'm looking at the building 
across the street here from my studio, the Wired building here in San Francisco. Nice. How, how do those guys approach problems? Because I'll tell you what, I mean, I look at this building all day. I don't see a lot of people coming in and out. Do they just live there? What's the deal? <laughs> there's a secret tunnel underneath where there's a, a pneumatic tube, kind of like at the bank. Uh-huh. It just whooshes them to their space age apartments. Nice. To Phil's coffee in between, hopefully. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's vaporized coffee that condenses into a cup, perfect temperature for you. Perfect. So lateral thinking is, it's a fancy psychologist term for kind of these bastardized terms that we, that now mean nothing like creativity and thinking outside the box. What it is, is it's instead of approaching problems logically, it's reframing problems. So rather than playing by the rules that are given to you, it's coming up with different rules or rearranging the pieces. The pop culture example that uh, everyone can relate to, or at least knows, is MacGyver, right? Rather than being stuck in the room and trying to like chisel the door open, he turns a fire extinguisher into a bomb and then blows his way out the side door. Are you talking about MacGyver right now? Because that's my jam. I mean, I've been watching reruns of MacGyver lately, and it's... uh, Where? Actually, it's more like YouTube reruns. So. Freely available on the internet, completely legal. Don't worry right, about it. Right. But, but that's the idea is that uh, rather than attacking problems head on, you find uh, a way to reframe the problem. And so in Smart Cuts, I document how anytime there's been breakthroughs in history in any industry from race car driving to comedy to business, you see the typical pattern that there's incremental improvement in any industry. You know, you jump over the high jump bar an inch higher at a time until the guy jumps over the high jump bar backwards. He plays by a different set of rules, mm-hmm. and then suddenly the games change, gold medals are won, and, uh, and everyone now has to catch up. This is, is a pattern uh, with lateral thinking. I think the thing about Wired, getting back to your question, is uh, that's a magazine. I also write for Fast Company, which is about innovation. The focus of both these kinds of magazines is, uh, is writing about how these kinds of people do it. And I think you can't be in that environment writing about these innovative people who just think backwards and accomplish incredible things without being inspired. And that's why you see a lot of people from, you know, the editor-in-chief of Wired left and now runs a, a drone company. And, uh, and that's my writing about this stuff is what inspired me to start my own company, uh, whose name I can't pronounce. That's what I wanted to do with the book is sort of satisfy my own intellectual curiosity about, well, what are the underlying patterns for? So, okay, great. Like lateral thinking, think differently. But if we as humans are wired to think the regular way, then how do you think of things that by definition you're not supposed to think of? And so I wanted to explore how people did that and in kind of an intellectual adventure kind of way, uh, but also at the end of the day, leave people with something that, that could help them change the way they think at a practical level. Excellent. That's fascinating. Let's not explore that at all. Um, no, <laughs> let's, let's look into that because here's the, I'm left-handed, right? So a lot of people growing up and stuff were like, oh, you know, you're wired totally differently. And I thought, oh, that, that's kind of baloney. And I hear it now too from woo-woo people. I, I do live in California. And they're like, oh, your brain works in a completely different way. And maybe there's something to that. But I, and I can attest, Growing up, I did push a lot of the doors that said pull, and I did push on the wrong side of a lot of doors until I just finally got it through my thick skull that the handle's always on the right, and I have to reach across my body or use my other hand or hit myself in the head with the door, which I still do sometimes. Uh, And a lot of things just aren't made for lefties, especially things like scissors and and all that jet pencils, which thankfully nobody uses anymore. But I've never really had a problem looking at things differently because I've never really had any other way. Everything's built for people that aren't left-handed. And that's a very minor 
thing because mostly it doesn't matter, right? And also that's probably, there's maybe dubious science behind that claim in the first place. I don't really know. Well, well, you're getting at something really important, actually. It's that you see a lot of times innovation coming about when you have disparate groups smashing together or when yes. you have an outsider or a wild card entering a new industry. So, for example, one of the stories I write about in my book is a children's hospital in England that was having all this trouble with uh, basically kids dying after their operations when they're being taken to the ICU because you have to transfer all this equipment and all these things. And they tried and tried to make this process smoother and choreographic, and it, and it was just really hard. And they couldn't stop some percentage of these kids from dying just in transit until the doctors, a couple of the doctors met some guys who were Formula One race car pit crew uh, mechanics who then came to the hospital and taught them how they change tires in two seconds and how they get a, a race car to sort of swap out everything and get back on the track in a very quick amount of time. It took those race car drivers to come and enter this hospital to get the doctors to think about things in a way that broke their assumptions. And so that pattern, what you're getting at, if you're the kind of person who's a little bit of a foreigner, it, you're a stranger in a strange land, at least you know when it comes right. to opening doors, then you, by definition, lack some assumptions that are probably holding people back from uh, from making change. And, you know, you think differently and a lot of times it doesn't work, but by thinking the same, you're only going to make so much incremental progress. So, so what you're getting at that is actually documented in research about innovation. Excellent. And that's why taking a kid's appendix out now takes 35 seconds instead of several hours. Thanks to those guys. But I, I think that makes a lot of sense, right? Because you do have to have somebody come in and disrupt. And we've seen that a lot. You do see it quite a bit when you think, oh, well, this is this thing that takes a certain amount of time. And I think banking is one of those things where PayPal came in and was just like, hey, you know, you can transfer money instantly. And everybody went, yeah, couldn't we always do that? And the answer is no, you couldn't. You had this ACH thing with computers and it only worked nine to five, you know, central standard time five days a week, and it took three days because there's computers, but there's also somebody else there who's used to work in a certain schedule that has to like check everything or whatever. And it was like, are you kidding? This is slowing down the global economy. And then Elon Musk went, yeah, we don't need to do that. We have spreadsheets now and we can put them on the interwebs. And then boom, billions of dollars later, now everybody transfers money up from your phone with a text message. And even that's like super slow and we're working on that. And it's funny to see that. And, and even in your own sort of like micro ventures that people do or, or your business that you're running, if you're an entrepreneur, I remember being interviewed by some television station in New York and they were like, how did you get the courage to quit your Wall Street job and become an entrepreneur? And it's like, I love these platitudes that people say like, you know, you just, when you get a feeling for an idea and you see the gap in the market. And my answer is just like, honestly, I thought it was going to be a hell of a lot easier than it was. <laughs> Right. So I started a company, honestly, hadn't really thought that far ahead, looked for all of the problems that might occur because that would have been really discouraging, stumbled in blindly, failed a ton, and dot, 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 profit, here we are. But that's not really good advice. It's actually terrible advice. Ignore <laughs> the risk, assume it's going to be way easier than it will be, and then you know persevere and maybe you'll make money out of it. I mean, that's bad advice. But some of that naivety helped you get through the things that other maybe more rational people would have uh, caused, caused them to quit, right? Oh, absolutely. There's smart kids all over San Francisco who have really good ideas that I meet at these networking things, and they've got these like apps and hardware and startup ideas that are brilliant and much more, much better planned 
than anything I've ever launched and that anything the Art of Charm as a company has ever launched. And they're still in beta phase and they're working out this and they're worried that this might happen. And I'm thinking, I never would have even thought about that. Good for you for avoiding it. But wait a minute. Not really, because you haven't done squat yet. So, right. like, just launch. And if that problem happens, well, now you've got back, you got all kinds of time to worry about stuff that's never going to happen. And I think that highly logical, really smart people, a lot of whom are listening to this show, they think, okay, you know, I've got to figure all these contingencies out. And that might be true if you're going to Sand Hill Road looking for investment. But if you're just going to waste your own money, nobody cares. Go, go right ahead. Do it now. All right, back to the show. Oh, yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I, when I started the book, I made this list of superlatives in history. I wanted to know who's the youngest Nobel Prize winner? Who's the youngest person to do this? And it kind of depressingly, you look at geniuses like Picasso and you realize that he did his best work in like the first few years of his career. And then once he got in a groove, like his work was fine, but it was all kind of in the within the boundaries that he'd set for himself. And so there's a surprising number of great innovators and, and successes who are kind of the naive or the sort of the young and the green. And there's something about that. I mean, this whole thing that we're talking about is wrapped up in that. That said, there, you know, the flip side of that is some of the most incredibly successful people in the world did their best work when they were, you know, 75. But the difference, I think, is, is that all of them managed to uh, break with the conventional wisdom of what people were telling them. I mean, I think like genius is on the border of people think you're insane and you're yes. actually really smart. Uh, and, and so I think that's the thing is we listen too much to, oh, you have to have this business plan and you have to have all of these pieces and it's not going to launch unless you have like a follow button and, and all of these things and investors will never listen to you unless you have this spreadsheet. Those are rules that aren't rules. And I think that's why some people have figured that out throughout their lives. And some people, just the first shot that they go into it, they don't know any better. And so then they build PayPal and then they, you know, on and on. Yeah, dot, 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 Facebook. I mean, even Zuckerberg said that uh, Facebook's greatest competitor hasn't been invented yet. And he's mm -hmm. he himself is very cognizant of the fact that in 10 to 15 years, he might just be like, this is what Facebook is and does. And some 23-year-old kid is going to be like, Psh. This old fart thinks that's why people are connecting? What an idiot. And then he's going to yeah. build something that's just going to swallow Facebook whole. And, and Zuck might see it coming and acquire them. That's, I think I that's his I, game plan. I think that's why he's panic buying anything cool now, yeah. right now. Right? <laughs> yes, exactly. He's like, well, it's not all my money, so I'm just going to try and make sure that I suck up. I mean, he, it's like the Death Star, right? <laughs> just suck it in before it can screw with you. How do we apply these lateral thinking concepts to everyday life because yes it's great to be genius and think about things differently and people are going yes i'm so psyched up about thinking differently oh wait i don't know how to do that should i start writing with my left hand what's the move here yeah so in, in a similar way that uh you sign up for the art of charm and uh jordan harbinger is not going to give you a checklist of pickup lines to use and then right. you're good to go i teach it's you how to use the salad fork that's pretty much it then you can go home <laughs> Yes. Uh, you know, you have to work on your inner game, right? It's about changing the way you behave and the way you think. The point of what I, what I do in the book is I try to boil down the patterns of what are the different sort of frameworks for changing your thinking through the stories and through the research of these superlative success stories. And, and I go through nine of them. But you can get down to a micro level and look at specific case studies that, as a 
journalists, you know, I would say the stories are powerful because they make you remember, right? So, you know, there's some, at a micro level, some things that you can always talk about, like you know, simple life hacks, right? Even stuff that MacGyver did, right? Like he cooked some egg whites on a radiator to, you know, plug the radiator leak and, and all of that. Or he used the foil gum wrapper to complete a circuit. And actually, it's a funny side story. I did this when I, I used to live in Hawaii and I couldn't afford television. I couldn't afford a cable. And so I got a TV from the street and I used tinfoil to make an antenna. And yeah. I felt very MacGyvery. I bet. Um, you, by the way, did you learn that from everyone's grandma? Because that's not a new trick. <laughs> I, I was really proud of myself. <laughs> but so there's, there's a few things that you can do uh, to kind of train yourself in lateral thinking. The first one is to start to what I call, I do a lot of what I call neurotic spreadsheeting. Um, if you're wired to think linearly, then you can use that linear thinking to systematically help yourself think laterally. So, for example, you take a problem, list out every assumption, no matter how ridiculous and how you know assumed it is, even the assumptions that gravity is real and the world is round, um, list out the assumptions and then go down the checklist and ask yourself, what if this assumption wasn't true? Uh, so there's there's kind of techniques like that. Another one that's that's very common sort of advice for lateral thinking is take a problem and then frame it as if uh, start to play make believe and say what it, how would a magician solve this problem or how would a figure skater solve this problem or how would a two year old answer this question? Uh, so that's kind of like vague, I guess, without a, a specific example. One of the things that I think has helped me personally in building my business is, uh, is this idea of, uh, so the counterintuitive thing that I talk about in my book is that it's ironically easier to build something that's 10 times better than just 10% better. And that is com- completely, you know, counterintuitive, right? It seems to defy math, but what it does is when you ask yourself, what if I had to make this, so in my case, business 10 times more profitable, what if I had to make this product 10 times simpler or 10 times better? Asking yourself that question, if I had to do this, forces you to rethink the assumptions that it has to have. You know, the mouse has to have three buttons. And, uh, and that's how we got the, you know, the magic mouse, which has zero buttons. Uh, or, you know, in my case with my business, we had a business model where we were making 15% margins. And we sat down and we asked ourselves, what if we had to make 10 times as much profit? What would we have to do? essentially breaking our whole company and re-engineering our business model to uh, a software model where we make 90% margins. And, uh, and it's that act of asking yourself those hard questions that forces you to rethink your own underlying assumptions, which no matter how lateral of a thinker you are, you get in a groove where you, you build a business or you, you do something that works for you. And then you assume that that's the way it's always going to work and right. you just get stuck in your own patterns. Sure. And I mean, even with things like basic assumptions, like even laws of nature, guys on the cutting edge are like, oh, that doesn't hold up anymore at a certain speed that no one's ever achieved. And it's like, oh, that's cute, Einstein. And then you get guys like Stephen Hawking, like, actually, in labs, we can create this in this really weird way. Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, in a 50 or 100 years, the next guy's going to be like, oh, yeah, we can do that. And now we regularly do that. How do you think they do heart surgery without cutting you open? And it's like, oh, so that's oh, yeah. real. And it's like, yeah, because somebody just went, screw this whole gravity thing. There's got to be a way around that. And, you know, there is. And when you say that, people think you're crazy. People think you're insane. And so that's the tough thing is, you know, 
we have this tendency to want to avoid looking crazy and we want people to like us and, and we take stock in what other people think of us. There's this thing, and I think it actually ties into a lot of what you talk about, you know, about uh, self-improvement and, and charm, is you have to get past, you have to build up the sort of inner fortitude to get past what other people think because you believe in the idea that is on this razor's edge of insane and I might die. Uh, you have to sort of forget what everyone's saying, including yourself, your own sort of inner voice um, in order to do these things. And I mean, and it can happen on like a, a giant level, like we want to go to Mars or on a, you know, on a tiny level, like I want to, you know, improve my dating life or I want to be more productive at work or, mm -hmm. you know, I have to get this screw out of the wall and the screw is stripped and how do I do it? And, you know, it's going to be ugly. And that's a, terrible off the cuff example. Yeah, it's all good. I mean, everything that I think we could probably figure out a way in which people broke assumptions based on pretty much any business that's successful. And the one that the art of charm is essentially founded on, I'm sure there are many, but the one that comes to mind is that people think, oh, you're born with a certain level of social skill and charisma and that's just the way it is. And I get that argument a lot, usually from old people who mm -hmm. go, oh, well, you know, you're just born with this. I used to think it was just an excuse for people not to bother improving themselves or learning anything. But at the end of the day, it's kind of like, well, no, I mean, if you grew up and your older brother was always well liked and you were always shy, well, then hell, that's the way the universe. Why would it be any other way? You've grown up 40 years doing the things this way. It, what are you, you know, I'm 27, you know, 10 years ago or I, God, how long ago was that? Eh, not that <laughs> long ago. You know, what do you know about it, Jordan? How can you possibly say that this is something that's nurture versus nature? It doesn't make any sense. And now it's science says, oh, yeah, that's totally false. You're definitely able to learn this stuff. And in fact, people that look like they were born with it just learned it earlier. Right. Well, and we, we tend to equate experience with merit and, and sort of the, uh, yeah, if, if you've lived a long life and you've been doing things a long time or you've seen a lot of things, you assume that because I've been doing this so long, I'm right or the way I see the world is right. And that's, that's not true. One of the things that, uh, you know, on a practical level that I, I like to talk about is this idea of developing skeptical optimism. Yes, so what is that? You, yeah, uh, I, I draw this sort of nerdy four by or two by two matrix, but uh, optimism versus pessimism. People, I hate when people say, I'm not a pessimist, I'm a realist. And they're really a pessimist, right? And they're kind of a jerk. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I hate when people say that. Um, but then there's there's some danger to sort of optimism, like I'm an optimist, you know, I'm going to gamble. I got, you know, three great hands in a row, which means I might win the next time too. I'm more likely. And that's, you know, kind of uh, irrational yes. as well. Yeah. Optimism is, is this hope uh, and belief in a better future. What pessimism is, is a belief in sort of a worse future. Uh, but there's this, uh, this thing that's sort of conflated with pessimism, which is skepticism. Uh, which is not taking things at face value. And people, they, they conflate the two words, but they're actually very different things. Not believing that the future is going to be good versus not taking things at face value are very different. So if you have, if you draw like a two by two matrix, one line is the spectrum from pessimism to optimism. The other line is the spectrum from skepticism to uh, credulity. So willing to believe anything. Then, uh, then you start to get these interesting combinations of people. If you have people who are, are credulous and uh, optimistic are like adventurers. They go out and, and try and find the Holy Grail and the Fountain of Youth. And, and a lot of entrepreneurs are this way. They believe in that the future can be better. And they also believe in the, the mythology and, or they believe that what people tell them. And sometimes they can be very successful. Uh, you get sort of pessimists who are credulous. And these are conspiracy theorists. 
right? They, they don't think the world's going to get any better. And like, there's definitely aliens that knock down the twin towers. And, uh, and the, a lot of actually regular people fall into this category, sort of the mild conspiracy theorists you, that you see. And, uh, it's very hard to be successful if you're in that category. Then you have the, the pessimistic, skeptical, and these are just horrible people uh, who they don't think the world's going to get any better and they don't believe anything you say. And a lot of them are jerks. And, and sometimes actually, unfortunately, clinical depression falls in the, into this category because by definition, when you're depressed, you can't picture a better future. And you kind of picture this empty future. And when you're in that state, you, you tend to not believe that that drugs are going to work and that, uh, you know, things can get better. Uh, but there's something interesting about this other fourth category of optimistic. You believe in a great future. You think that things can be amazing and, and bright, but you don't take things at face value. You're skeptical of what people say to you. And this is the category that people like Steve Jobs fall into, uh, where they believe wholeheartedly that they can change the world and that you know we'll have flying cars, and that people will walk around with thousands of songs in their pockets, and that we can make design uh, beautiful things. But they also, when they're presented with something, they say no. Their initial reaction is it's not good enough, or I don't I don't believe that that this is the right uh, the right path. And so this sort of charting out where you are on a given issue or a given day, and trying to force yourself to. Uh, to have this skeptical optimism, to to believe in an entrepreneurial way that like things can be great and you can do it, uh, but that the things that are presented to you are, may not be true. That just even what I'm telling you now, maybe it's not true. You should go, you know, check it out for yourself. And this is, I think, this is something that I inherited from journalism: is you're supposed to question what the, your interviewees tell you. You're supposed to sort of double check their facts and uh, and even double check Wikipedia. If you get in the habit of doing that, of just sort of verifying everything that is is told to you, not taking it at face value, then you can develop this healthy skepticism and, and combine that with sort of this inclination to uh, to think that the world can be better. And so I think that as you know as a man or as anyone who's who's watching this show is an incredibly powerful habit. And it's it really starts with just asking questions and and just even in, you know, you don't have to be a jerk in a benign way, like fact checking things. When someone tells you something, you know, that uh could think of an example, but it'll be as bad as the screwdriver example. Someone tells you something, ask why, and and do this sort of kid thing. Ask, well, why is that, and and what about you know if it wasn't that way, and uh, and sort of dig into that. That actually makes you a very interesting conversationalist too. You get people talking, you ask questions, but that's how you can develop that muscle that will help you uh, kind of naturally become more of a lateral thinker. Excellent. Wow. Can you give us an example of how we might use that in, in everyday life? Like just when's the next time you foresee yourself using this? Or when's the time that you find yourself using this often? So an example comes to mind in a book that I just read. A guy and his friends, uh, they get out of the airport and they have to take a taxi to the train station and then a train to London. And they go to the taxi stand and they see the taxi drivers are all kind of chatting and they, they go there and they say, take us to the train station. And the drivers say, well, where are you heading? And they say, we're heading to London. And the driver says, oh, the trains are having a strike, so uh, the trains aren't running today, but I could just take you all the way to London. And, you know, it would cost like 300 pounds or something. And so everyone was kind of sad, and they're like, oh, okay, well, I guess well, this really sucks, but all right. So they start loading up their luggage. One of the guys in the group says, well, give me one second. And he runs back into the airport, to the airport information booth, and says, what's the deal with the train strike? And they said, there is no train strike. And so they realized that they were being scammed by the taxi driver. And it, it was that, you know, 30 seconds of him just 
checking with someone else, not taking someone on his word, uh, that saved them, you know, 300 pounds. And so that's kind of the idea of, you don't have to be a jerk about it, but don't be, I guess, so easily duped. So I think that can happen all the time, like scams, right? How do you avoid a scam on the street? Someone's trying to get money from you. For me, skeptical optimism, I mean, really, my life is all about writing. So I recently wrote a story, for example, about uh, brainwave sensing headbands. And cool. uh, it's, yeah, this is super cool. It's going to come out pretty soon. And it's sort of like jawbone for your brain. You put on this headband, and it tells you how calm you are, how focused you are, it measures your alpha, beta, delta waves. And, and it seems pretty cool. And, you know, I did some research on, on the science. And the founder of the company told me all of this amazing stuff. Like the more you use the headband, you know, the more you'll unlock insights about the way your brain is and, and all of this funky stuff. And, and everyone else who's written about this headband has repeated that uh, sort of sales pitch. And, uh, and so I used the headband for a month until I got to the point where I can unlock these alleged insights. And then I got to a screen that said, this page is broken. And so then I emailed the PR person and I said, what's the deal? This, there's a bug in the thing. Um, rather than assuming it was a bug, I, I said, does this actually exist yet? And she had confessed, well, no, it actually doesn't yet. Uh, we're still working on building it. And, uh, and, I, and so then I said, well, then how does the insights thing actually work? And she said, well, actually, we don't know. We haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> so suddenly I had a piece of the story that was really crucial that uh, everyone else had repeated sort of the false thing. And so that's how it applies in, in my life specifically as a writer is digging into any claim that anyone makes and any assertion that anyone makes. And again, in business, uh, a way this often happens is anytime someone says, this is how it's done, or you know, in your job, like this is the way it's done, asking the question, how come? And when did that start? And why? And when they give the answer, ask why again. And, and you know, this might get you fired, but maybe you want to get fired from a, a place that is so dogmatic. That's where, for most people watching the show or listening to the show, that's the most important thing is anytime someone says, like, if the answer is this is the way it's done or we've always done it this way or that's how it is, chances are that is a lie and you should question that and you should dig into it. And if, uh, you know, a lot of times that's how businesses are started is because people realize that this is the way it's done. It doesn't have to be that way. And there can be a more elegant way that can actually be profitable. Wow. I like that a lot. And I mean, I wish that I were better at that. A lot of people say, oh man, you know, you really see through people's crap. Honestly, a lot of practice has gone into that. And even mm -hmm. then, sometimes in real life, whereas on the show, I might be like, hmm, that sounds like crap. In real life, somebody might be like, isn't that weird that the sky's green? And you're like, oh, it looks blue to me, but maybe that's just me. Hmm. I don't know. Or like, you know, people will say, oh, this coffee was shat out by a Mongol, so it's, you know, this <laughs> right. is why it tastes better. And I'm like, mm, that's damn good coffee. Wait a minute. No. Yeah. It's it's like, this coffee tastes like shit. That's because it is shit, Jordan. Mm, good. It's not just me, right? I don't really get that far in my in my analysis. So it, it does take a lot of practice. you got to kind of intercept yourself just automatic. Well, at least for me, I just kind of have to automatically or stop myself from automatically believing everything that goes in. Mm -hmm. I don't really know why. I mean, I went to law school. You'd think I'd have it by now. I'm 34 <laughs> years old. I talk to a lot of people. And yet, usually when people tell me something, I'm like, hmm, yeah, that sounds right. Wait, no. No, it doesn't. But well, it takes a while. And we self-sabotage ourselves by in the way we follow up. Even if So if you're like, hmm, is it really the monkey really shat out this coffee? Uh, what we do to help other people save face, because we want to be pleasant, 
when we ask the follow-up question, and we do this with questions in general, it drives me nuts that people do this. You ask a question and then you give people a multiple choice series of answers that they can then choose from. You say, did the monkey really shout out the coffee or is this, you know, like, uh, could it be that it's like that this happened or, or you know, the monkeys are just kind of, and you kind of like trail off in this host of answers and you give people an easy out. And what a good questioner or inquisitor will do is they'll ask very, they'll do the Charlie Rose thing and they'll say, you know, the two word question, why is that? Tell me more about that. And, and it makes people uncomfortable a lot of times, but by not giving them an out in your, in your questioning, you actually can get people to sort of divulge their own, uh, can we curse on this podcast? Yeah, you can go do it right now. <laughs> to diverse their own bull pucky. Uh, that was weak. No, I, I figured I, I, it was a lot of buildup, so pucky. And I think that's another thing. A practical way to engage in lateral thinking is to ask questions that are short, open-ended, or deliberately yes or no, and not give people sort of the three options. And, and we always do this. You trail off like, so how was your day, Jordan? Was it good? Or did you go to the beach? Or are you feeling well? You look like a little pale. Did you, have you gotten a lot of sleep? And like, that's annoying, first of all. But it doesn't help you get to the core of uh, of what's what's actually going on. Wow. Okay. Good. Lots there for people to absorb. But you've learned a lot from other people as well. I mean, you've read a ton of biographies. You've learned from successful bad guys. Can we hear a couple of ways that you've leveraged other people's knowledge slash success slash failure to your advantage to uh, to hone this process? Absolutely. And, and this is part of what. Uh, why the book is so uh, story-driven, I wanted to wrap every piece of research around someone's biography. Um, because, well, here's the pattern. When you look at... Because Robert Greene did it, and damn, that worked. No, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you look at incredible people who just can't seem to lose... People like Elon Musk, right? Like he's he built PayPal and then he built SpaceX and then he built Tesla and he has a solar company. When you look at people like that, what you tend to find is they are often very obsessed with uh, innovators that came before them. So Elon Musk has a, shares a similar obsession to me with Benjamin Franklin. The autobiography of Ben Franklin is my favorite book. And uh, I think that there's something powerful about that, that learning from other people who not only did it well, but did it the best learning not just how they did it, but how they thought and how they lived their life and how they conducted their journey is, uh, is incredibly powerful. And so for me, I've taken lessons from, say, Ben Franklin. Um, so he was a, you know, he's an inventor, he was an entrepreneur, and he's also a journalist, which hmm, sounds very much like what I'm aspiring to do. And uh, here's an example. When he taught himself to write, he decided that he was in the publishing business, he decided he was a mediocre writer. So how did he teach himself to write? Actually, in a very meta way, he studied the master writers of his time. He would take the, the Spectator, I believe was the name of the magazine. It was sort of like the New Yorker of the 1800s. He'd take back issues of that, and he would take the best stories in there, and he'd make notes at a sentence level of, uh, you know, here's the gist of the sentence. So he'd write these notes, then he'd put the magazine away for a week, and then he'd come back, and he'd try to rewrite the story from his notes in as elegant of a way possible. And then he'd compare that to the real magazine, realize that like his story was shit, and then make notes on like what was it that these great writers did that he didn't, and how did they use metaphor and sentence length and all of this. So this is the analog to my neurotic spreadsheets. So I got 
sort of my habit of making neurotic spreadsheets out of this process that Ben Franklin used to become a very good writer, a superlative writer in a very short amount of time, or soon he was rewriting these stories better than the people that had originally written them and became known at a very young age, like age 21 as this superlative uh, writer and, and statesman. And so I've, I've taken that concept, sort of stolen that idea uh, to attack problems in my life. Everything from how are you going to market a book? Well, let's study at a sentence level what great you know, number one business bestsellers throughout history have done. Um, or even the other day, I wrote about this. Someone took a, a photo of me at like a, an event, like a party, and, uh, and I was making this terrible face. And then I looked at this next photo and I was making a slightly less terrible face, but it's still a terrible face. So I was concerned about my like step and walk or whatever. Um, so when you stand behind the thing at like the gala and they take pictures of you and, uh, and all the celebrities are there. It's, it's not red carpet, but yeah, I know what you're talking about. It's got like the logos of the sponsor and it's, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I go to enough of those or, you know, aspire to, I guess, um, or I go to enough things where people are taking impromptu photos of me that I'm now stressing out about like how, what's the face I'm making in photos. So I made this spreadsheet of confident men who look great in photos and I made a list of them and then I searched on Google images and then I cataloged what they do with their eyebrows and like wrinkling their forehead and like the corners of their mouth and do they smile with teeth and like how do these guys who are really good at it do it? And so I made this spreadsheet. It's ridiculous. I could share it with you if you want um, just to help me get at and reconstruct the tiny details uh, of these people who are very good at this so that then I can work on my own, you know, not looking like a, a snaggle tooth in, in photos and Ian Sommerhalder is the answer to this question is perfect at this. So if you ever want to look good in photos, just look at, at him on Google Images. Anyway, so that's totally a technique. Um, but So I stole that from, from Ben Franklin. And I think this is why, I mean, people should read biographies. They really should. Uh, one of the guys that I profile in my book is a, a shoe designer, the second African-American shoe designer in the country. And he faced an uphill battle. This guy was incredibly talented. Like He deserved to get to where he got, which was designing shoes for Michael Jordan. And he eventually started an academy for underprivileged artists and amazing guy that deserved every bit of success that he got. But what got him through this really hard uphill battle as a minority in a, a very sort of rigid industry was by obsessing over Jackie Robinson biographies. So he got to the point where he would ask himself, what would Jackie do in this situation? Because Jackie Robinson, he was in a very different industry, but he was facing very similar challenges. And, and this was a guy that had the internal fortitude. He wasn't the best African-American baseball player of his time, but he was the one that had the guts and the patience and the courage to do what no other player you know, in his situation could have done. And so this guy, Dwayne, the shoe designer, he developed this long-distance relationship with this dead baseball player that helped him get through his struggles. And, uh, and he, credits, uh, he credits Jackie Robinson with his success. And so what you find when you study people like, like him, you know, great artists and, uh, and performers and business people, is that they often have a muse like that, that guides not just the way they practice, but guides the way that they conduct their life and their journey. And I think that that's really powerful. Wow. Yeah, that is powerful. How do you suggest we go about finding that person? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, it's about finding your passion for one, but I, I think there's sort of the oldies but goodies that you can you can pick a list. So Bruce Lee, he's one of, one that I you know I think applies to a lot of industries. You can either say who is the Michael Jordan of my industry. You know, uh, I know that you love cross stitch Jordan, right? So who's I, the Michael I love, Jordan? Well, crocheting really, but cross stitch substitute that I'm willing to work with. 
<laughs> I'm not familiar enough with, you know, with it to, to really know, but I know that's, that you're into it. You say, who's the Michael Jordan of that industry? Read their biography. Right. And then look at, at who was her hero. And so you can kind of go down this chain of, of who did they look to until you get to sort of these superlative uh, people. But or you can just do what I did, which was just make a list of everyone who's cool and read about them on Wikipedia until you find something interesting. Ask, was that right? And then go buy some biographies. Wow. I have Dr. Seuss's biography on my shelf um, that I'm currently reading. And he has nothing to do with, I guess he was a writer, but nothing to do with entrepreneurship. But you'd be amazed the things that he did in his life that, uh, that apply to, uh, to what uh, I talk about and, and how I conduct my own business. Wow, brilliant. And now, what, explain these neurotic spreadsheets again. I, we sort of touched on that, but didn't really dive in. Basically, it's a way to force yourself to notice the little details that make up world-class success. You can do it on a spreadsheet, or you can do it on paper, or whatever. The idea is to not just, by default, we pick up as you know, sort of sensory beings, we pick up the details that stand out as sort of outliers. Like, you see the red nose on the clown first but you don't see the dirt under the clown's fingernails. So it's sort of the Sherlock Holmes thing of if you could notice all of the details, then you could figure out what makes the difference between good and incredible. And if you're working on something, you want to know those details and that you know the 1% makes the, the difference between success and failure often. And so neurotic spreadsheeting is my way of cataloging, cataloging the mundane so that I can figure out what it is that makes the difference. In a way, it helps you get to this idea of breaking assumptions. So you're told that X is true about success. You know, one of my big ones is like pay your dues, work hard, pay your dues. Once you gain experience and once you've earned it by sort of loyalty and all of that, then you are able to level up and, and go do great things. So one time I made a neurotic spreadsheet of presidents of the United States and just how many dues they had paid before they got to the president. And so, and it was a huge pain that I took every president, went through their whole career, all of the jobs that they had for how long they had it, you know, from childhood on and, uh, and how they got there and were they elected and were they not. I made this spreadsheet and what I found was something quite counterintuitive, which was that the best ranked presidents in history as ranked by historians are actually the ones with the least amount of dues paid in Congress. And, uh, on the flip side, some of the worst presidents in history were the ones that spent the most time in Congress. Right. To your earlier and, point, right, that they kind of get set in their ways on this is how things work and blah, 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 versus the guy who just sort of comes up. It's like a Hollywood movie. The guy who's like, to hell with the old ways. I'm going to run for president <laughs> right. the old-fashioned way and wins and is like, forget all this campaign finance bullcrap. Reform right. education. Make the world a better place, right? And right. That's, that's very Freakonomic of you to create <laughs> that. Yeah, uh, and I love those guys. That's a, a flattering compliment. Well, so what I I discovered this, and so of course it begs a lot of questions, like, well, how would you be successful if you didn't have experience? And and I dig into that, you know, later. But I I started asking presidential historians if they knew about this, and it turns out that no one really knew this, and no one had spent the time to neurotically catalog all of these mundane details. Everyone knew the life history of Lyndon Johnson, but they didn't know that he was the exact average amount of dues paying in Congress. And he's actually clocks somewhere in the 50 percentile in terms of uh, best presidents. And so it was that neurotic spreadsheet that actually led to the first chapter of my book and me discovering this principle, I guess, evidence for this principle that I wanted to explore on, on paying dues. And so, so that's the idea, just cataloging the mundane. Um, I think David Foster Wallace said one time in a commencement speech that it's the banal and the mundane uh, and the 
insignificant that often is the most significant. And uh, I don't know if you've ever read any of his stuff. He was a master at writing about things that were so common in a way that was so beautiful. That's sort of the art of lateral thinking is looking at the common and dissecting the beautiful from the, you know, sort of the, the common wisdom and asking, is this thing that's so common actually part of the pattern of what makes for greatness? Right. Yeah. Or is it just something that right just happens to a, the bulk of the people? That's really interesting because you're right. A lot of people confuse correlation with causation, right? Is yes. that where it's like, oh, well, most presidents spend 20 years in Congress, which is probably too much, but whatever. And it's like, oh, then that's the way you need to do it. Because obviously, that's what makes people more eligible. You know, the more time you spend there, the more likely you are. And it's like, no, that's that's what the majority of like presidents with bad approval ratings have done. But it has nothing to do with, you know, your level of success in office, or whatever. There's something else, right? Yeah, I think it actually was for economics where they said that ice cream consumption goes up at the same time that murders go up. And so therefore, ice cream, people who eat ice cream are more likely to commit murders. And it turns I would out agree that, with that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it turns out that both things go up in the summer. So you eat ice cream when it's hot and people are out more and I guess murdering each yeah, other. School's out. What do you guys want to do this summer? I don't know. I'm torn between eating a lot of ice cream and murdering someone. You know what? I can do both. I got a lot of time. Well, a you lot of time. hands like gun in one, ice cream in the other. Right. Swirl cone in the other. That's that the OG. Thinking, you don't have to choose, right? That, that's what we're saying here. You can have both. Right. Yeah, you can. It just depends on, on how willing you are to get it to get it right. Now, thanks so much for this. Is there anything that I haven't asked you? I mean, I know you got the five second rule. I don't know what that is. It's itching me. So I'm going to ask you what it is before we go. So five second rule is uh, something I've been doing for a long time. There's actually this immensely popular Reddit post about this uh, a couple of years ago. So, so we're afraid of doing things for a lot of reasons, right? Of letting people down or of failing or whatever it is. Um, and that prevents us from doing what we want to do. So in my case, I was very afraid of heights. And I grew up in you know, places where you jump off of bridges into water and jump off of cliffs into water. And that was very scary for me. So the five second rule is that you make a solemn pact with yourself that whenever you're going to do something scary or that's, that makes you nervous, you count to five and on five you go. So, you know, anything from, okay, I'm going to jump off this cliff into the water, one, two, three, four, jump. And, uh, or I'm going to kiss this girl, one, two, three, four, go. And if you commit to yourself to this rule, you get to the point where the thing you're afraid of is breaking your rule. The thing you're afraid of is letting yourself down. You want to be able to live with yourself. That's, that's the five-second rule that I, I kind of live my life by. And it, it helps me to do you know, a lot of very silly sort of minor things. But uh, the everyday things, like I said, you know, the common things make the difference. Little things that scare you, like you know, making that phone call that you don't want to make. Or even this morning, I actually totally did this this morning. I stayed up till 3.30 and I woke up and I had to get up. And I was really tired and I needed to get out of bed. And I was like, oh, but I could just lay here. And I said, no, okay, five seconds. Okay, one, two, three, four, and I got up. And uh, I think, uh, yeah, it's it's a little thing, but has changed uh, a lot of my, uh, helping me get over a lot of my neuroses or at least deal with them because I'm afraid of the bigger fear for me is of breaking that rule and letting sure. myself down. Yeah, of course. We we have the two snaps rule here with, you know, can you snap your fingers twice, then you just sort of commit to doing it. Otherwise, you're going to talk yourself out of it. So it's right. basically what it sounds like. So people here are already very familiar with that. And I think it's great that you apply it to, 
other areas across your life. Like, oh man, do I want to get up and speak at this thing that I'm at? No. Oh, it looks embarrassing. Oh man, what would I say? But if you just go, yeah, I kind of want to. Oh my God, why did I just commit to that? And you got your hand in the air already. You're going to do it. And then at the end, you're like, I'm glad I did that. Right. I mean, very rarely are you going to regret something so deeply that this is a really bad idea. I'm not saying, should I run across the highway? Well, you know, for that's not the five second rule in action. It's more like, I'm afraid of this for no logical reason. It's the phobia. Like, right. Like, I'm afraid of getting up in front of this group or I'm afraid of rejection or whatever it is, but I'm more afraid of like letting myself down by not sticking to what I've committed to. Right. It's just that the consequences for that are not as immediate. So that's why we talk our way out of all that stuff, launching our business, writing our book, whatever it is. Well, thanks so much, Shane Snow. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you want to put out there? Obviously, we're going to link to your book, Smart Cuts or Smarty Cuts. You can still, still, there's still time to change the title. We're going to link to that in the show notes, shanesnow.com, of course, linked up in the show notes as well. Is there anything that you want to leave us with? I, you did forget to ask me if I want to join you for your next uh, cross-stitch um, oh, party. Well, that I kind of assumed was a given. I look forward to you know getting a calendar invite or something you you know, got it. Uh, respectful Facebook like that. Facebook invite. What about your book? It's just coming out now, right? September 9th. Maybe even by the time this airs, it will have come out and you know, trumpets will have sounded. And I'm going to be running around the country uh, speaking about it and... Uh, I will actually even be in L.A. for one of those speeches. So uh, so tell your friends, I guess. You got it. Well, thanks so much, Shane. Much appreciated. Great interview. Thanks. This was a blast. I, yeah, my pleasure. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. Shane's a really smart guy, as you can see, and he's well ahead of his time, having just turned 30 recently. Good for him. I love the MacGyver brain idea. I think it's great. I think every little kid in all of us wants to be a little bit more MacGyver, and you never thought that you could apply this stuff to your modern life. Here, we just thought that he made cool remote control devices to help fight off bad guys because he couldn't throw a punch, but alas, there's a lot more in there. And skeptical optimism, we never really had a word for it, but I think there is a great opportunity to use this term, how it helps bulletproof us and make us more aware of things as as well as keeping us optimistic instead of being like ah pessimistic i'm a realist i mean you can be an optimist and be realistic too but it does help to have a little bit of wits about you and and this is a great sort of framework for keeping that in mind throughout life and neurotically making spreadsheets not my thing directly but i think for the analytical guys out there creating something where you can track just about everything and figuring out how to test everything will really jibe with some people and lead to some really, really great results. I mean, look at friggin' Stephen J. Dubner and the Freakonomics guys and Malcolm Gladwell. I mean, that's all data analysis gone wild. And there's a lot you can really do with that to lead to better performance all around. So I hope you guys enjoyed this one as much as I enjoyed recording it. There's a lot here. So I hope to see some feedback from you guys, both on Twitter and in my email inbox. All right, show feedback and guest suggestions. We rely on you guys to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let us know, jordan at theartofcharm.com. And of course, Shane was introduced to me by another guest, so I always appreciate that stuff. Keeps us chucking along. If you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Shane on Twitter. We're going to have his Twitter linked in the show notes as well. Bootcamp details for our live training at theartofcharm.com. And if you're listening to this but you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher, that needs to change. Getting this stuff for free on your phone while you sleep its really the best way to make sure you don't miss anything. You can go to theartofcharm.com slash iTunes and find your way through Stitcher and other places. And alternately, we have our iPhone and Android apps available at theartofcharm.com slash iPhone and slash Android. 
And if you guys want to help us, write us a review in iTunes or Stitcher. It helps us stand out from the crowd. So tell your friends, is the greatest compliment you can give us as a referral to someone else, either in person or share it on the web. So have a great week. Go out there, get social, and leave everything and everyone better than you found it. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com.